Hello, I'm Alex Zane, film journalist, movie fan and your host for A Trip to the Movies. I'm currently in our podcast studio a mile beneath the streets of London and in a moment my guest this week, the brilliant Justin Simeon, will be taking us on his perfect night out at the cinema and talking all things Haunted Mansion. Thank you for downloading the podcast. This episode is brought to you by Odeon. From as little as £2.50, your little one's imaginations can run wild this summer because every day during the school holidays, Odeon will be showing the most magical fairy tales and animated films ever made so the whole family can enjoy that cinematic feeling of sinking into the softest seats and being mesmerised by massive screens for less. To immerse your family in an unforgettable adventure from £2.50, look out for Odeon Kids tickets on their website or app. You see, Odeon make movies and the school holidays better. And if you'd like a pair of free tickets to head to your nearest Odeon, stick around after the show and I'll tell you how you can get a pair and announce this week's winner. Also, if you'd like to watch today's interview in glorious Technicolor, head over to our YouTube channel. And please, while you're there, do hit the subscribe button and help us grow the pod into a giant temple of film. For all the latest updates and to get in touch, you'll find us at Trip to Movies Pod. That's at Trip to Movies Pod on all social media. Right then, time to introduce today's guest, who I interviewed in our podcast studio just last week. So let's do this. Hello and welcome to A Trip to the Movies, where each week a special guest takes us on their perfect night out at the cinema. This week we're joined by a brilliant filmmaker whose work includes the critically acclaimed film Dear White People and the hit Netflix show of the same title. His new movie is a wonderful adaptation of the famous Disneyland ride Haunted Mansion, hitting cinemas here in the UK on August the 11th. Here to tell us all about that and take us on his perfect night out at the movies, it's the supremely talented Justin Simeon. Justin Simeon, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm great, man. Thanks for having me. Hey, thanks for coming in. Um, let's start with the big thing. Congratulations. I saw the movie a couple of days ago, Haunted Mansion. It's it's fun. It's funny. It's surprisingly moving yeah. as well. How are you feeling? Uh, I'm feeling good. I don't know. I mean, this is always the weird part when you sort of like loose the movie to the people uh, and especially like, you know, coming into the, under the ashes of Barbenheimer. There's obviously a, a lot of uh, <laughs> sort of like conversation about the state of the business and all this kind of stuff that I'm just trying to like keep separate <laughs> from my experience of, you know, artists making movie shows audience, you know. Um, uh, it, it, so I don't quite know what I'm feeling. But as I untangle it, I'll be sure to let you know. I mean, I find this fascinating. Your history with Disney actually goes back quite a long way, doesn't yeah, it? it does. To even before your filmmaking career. Yeah. I mean, in, in ways I don't even really talk about a lot. I mean, um, I, I I know that you're talking about me uh, going to Disney World at a young age. Mm. But even before then, I have to say my favorite toy growing up was this Fisher-Price movie viewer. And it would, like, project, like, stills from movies onto the wall. And where did those stills come from? They came from Disney cartoons. And I had always had this fascination with uh, the movies since that time. Um, but uh, when I was growing up, one of my mom's just sort of like goals was to take her kid to Disney World. And I grew up in Houston, Texas. Uh, she saved up the money. We drove into New Orleans and, and flew out to, to Disney World. And I rode the Haunted Mansion. It was the first <laughs> thing we rode. And, um, you know, at nine years old, it just took my breath away. It was like, so how did they do that? I just, it really was like all I could think about. And um, and then later, uh, while in film school, I actually got a job working at Disneyland, mm -hmm. which is in California. Yeah. Uh, and I'd ride these rides over and over again and, and kind of just marvel at the cinema of them, to be honest. So how, how much of a, a surreal pinch yourself moment is it then when you get the call going, hey, we want you to direct Haunted Mansion? You know, it's quite surreal. And you never get that call. I have to say, when you're making, a, at least I did, and I'm making a studio movie, you're constantly pitching. Uh, I, I pitch to get the movie made, and then you're in a kind of like proto-pre-production where it's not greenlit, but you're got, you have to sort of prepare the movie as if it were greenlit in order to convince them. And then even when it's greenlit, the sort of transition between that and making the movie, it, you never get the like, congratulations! <laughs> like that call literally never comes. You get a call saying like, hey, just so you know, this and this and this and this are on the line. So good luck. That's the more of the call that you get. Uh, so it's only now that I'm actually starting to 
actually like relax enough to pr- appreciate, frankly, um, the weird uh, cacophony of events that led to this for me, and um, and just how meaningful it is to to be in this position. Um, it's it's as I said, a, a great movie. I imagine, and I'm guessing here. Quite a fun movie to research. Yes. Oh, my God. The research is my favorite part. <laughs> and and there's endless stuff to research because you have the actual mansion itself. And obviously, Disney keeps a lot of good records. And, and, you know, there's a book that tells you, you know, exactly what the do's and don'ts of the mansion are and all that kind of stuff. But then they're all kind of memifying what what they understood to be a haunted mansion mm-hmm. in 1968. And then you get to kind of look into their influences. And there was so much to figure out there. Uh, you know, whether or not it was why set it in New Orleans, to which I, I found tremendously inspiring answers to that question, um, as to, you know, well, why all the mirror stuff? And why all the smoke? And why the hallways? You know, why are these the tropes that were bringing in 68? And it led me to these really amazing reservoirs of research. I could, I could spend the entire time just doing that part you know uh eventually you you have to cut it off though and start to actually make the movie but uh everything from architecture to ghost stories to you know theories about how ghosts might exist to ghost photography there was endless endless stuff to research on this film am i right in thinking i might have got this wrong but it was the haunted mansion one of the if not the last ride that walt disney himself had a hand in actually creating yeah that was the last one uh that he you know was alive for uh, its sort of creation. And in terms of the balance of the ride, I've, I've been on it as well, and it's it's, it's, a, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. It's, a, it's a great ride. In terms of uh, transplanting is not quite the right word, but evolving that mix of humor mm-hmm. and scares, that's, mm-hmm. that's not an easy, they're not easy bedfellows. No, I find them to be quite easy bedfellows, but not everybody does. Uh, I, but luckily Walt Disney did, because that was exactly the conversation that he had with his Imagineers. It's like, how scary should this actually be? And at first it was to be very scary, and then it was to be really, really cute and mild. And they sort of <laughs> kind of argued their way into the version that endures. And and I grew up on that stuff. You know, I think about the movies I watched as a kid and I'm, I'm whether we're talking about peewee's playhouse uh, which i could see uh you know that was sort of uh, appropriate for the age that i was when it came out or things like nightmare on elm street 2 which i saw at a very inappropriate age <laughs> um i i grew up with stuff that was a mix of really dark uh horror and you know what is called black comedy this sort of like comedic take on a on a otherwise dark and gloomy world and i that stuff is what I was attracted to growing up. That's the stuff that Katie Dippold was attracted to when she was writing the screenplay. Mm-hmm. I felt a lot of um, the haunting in her work and a lot of poltergeist and a lot of early Tim Burton. And uh, that stuff just makes sense to me that those <laughs> things should go together. But in the process, there are certainly a lot of folks you got to calm down about it <laughs> <laughs> and remind them, you know, hey, you know, actually Disney was founded on this weird mix. Like if you go back and you watch the early Disney films, Snow White, Pinocchio, uh, certainly Band you realize that like incredibly intensely dark yeah. moments uh, <laughs> are, are held right up against moments of celebration and humor and jubilation. It's in the kind of DNA of Disney. Uh, and so to make this movie, you can't pull any punches, I didn't think. It felt like you really had to go there. And I, I did touch on this at the start, but I'm, not that it surprised me, but what I was really I, I loved about this was at the center of um, all these wonderful set pieces is a really emotional story. There's some emotional heft to Lakeith Stanfield's yeah. story as Ben and uh, and Chase Dillon. I yeah. mean, wow, as Travis. Kid. What a what a performance! What a performance! What a performance! And and you know. I would say it's a shame that they can't be here to talk about it uh, because of the ongoing strike. But it's not a shame because the strike is really uh, actually important. And, um, you know, one of the reasons it's important for me to be here is to speak, you know, on their behalf uh, uh, as I'm obligated to do. But uh, but because you don't expect it. Uh, It's part of why I was so drawn to them as actors for this is that I knew that they would be able to handle and it might even be a surprise to some people, their ability to be charming and funny and 
and, and give leading man kind of energy. But I knew that they were going to bring a vulnerability to their role, to their to their work, and particularly Keith, uh, who I think he is so good at bringing audiences inside of all kinds of characters, whether they you can't understand a word they're saying in, in something like Atlanta or whether they're not even being inhabited by their own selves in something like Get Out mm-hmm. or Judas and the Black Messiah, where he is playing a character that is just reprehensible the way he he's such a traitor, you know, to his race in the movie. He makes you care about these people. And I, I really needed that uh, in, you know, in the center of this movie. That's the only way we were going to get through it and make it feel meaningful to an audience is if you immediately connect and kind of like this guy who's a little rough around the edges, maybe, mm-hmm. and is going through some grief. Um, if you didn't want to be around that guy, we were, we were pretty lost at sea. So uh, thank God I got him. Yeah, he's, uh, he's fantastic. We'll talk more uh, about Lakeith Stanfield as we go, no doubt. Um, so there are, there are movie fans and there are Disney movie fans. Uh, There are people who know these rides and these films inside out. How much, I mean, I I think you may, you may be one of them, but also (laughs) were you aware of that intense fandom while you were making this? And and I guess finding that, that sweet spot of making this accessible to newcomers, but also allowing the fans to know that we know what we're doing here. Yes, yes. I mean, some of this, again, it it begins with Katie Dipple, the writer, who is literally those things. She is a deep cut nerd for the Haunted Mansion, uh, but also wanted to create a movie that allows new people in. And I knew that there was a huge fandom, but the Haunted Mansion fandom was something I was delighted to discover and fall into uh, as I was making this film. And uh, I kind of like spied on them a lot. Like I was, uh, I, I, I looked at their TikToks and their YouTubes. I mean, it's, it's, they're probably why I'm on TikTok in the first place, because, you know, that was an addiction that took hold uh, right after that. Um, and, and to me, it's just it's it's part of the job, you know. I grew up, and I and by this way, I love this movie. I love the first X Men movie, but I, I'll never forget the moment when the co- you see the costumes for the first time, and I was so bummed because it was so cynical of the studio to kind of demand that it be this black leather sort of Matrix wannabe. Which, it, but that was the time; it had to be that in order for us to arrive where we are. But that bummerness of being <laughs> a fan of something and knowing that it has a cinematic appeal, and and that just being ignored when they make the movie that I didn't want anyone who loved the Haunted Mansion to feel that I wanted them to understand that whether it was not it, whether or not we're talking about like the first reveal of the house uh, and being really true geographically to the original ride or it was certain ghosts uh, or certain costume elements um, I wanted them to know that I, I really cared and paid attention about those details uh, on the X-Men subject it, it's only taken 23 years, but I saw a still from Deadpool 3, and yeah. I, I think we're finally getting the right Wolverine costume. Where's the helmet, though? I know. Okay, where the helmet oh at? Oh, my God. Where the helmet Don't. at? I, I thought I'd found a little glimmer of hope. I'm excited, too, <laughs> but I want to see the helmet. It makes it why it makes sense. <laughs> I get it. I get how the helmet could work in a movie. Let's go. Oh, I just assumed that they hadn't included it for that still. If it's <laughs> not there at all, there's going to be trouble. There's going to it'll. I, I have hope. I mean, there was an outtake of Logan. Mm. with the helmet in it that makes me feel like okay they know we want the helmet yeah. uh so we'll see mm. <laughs> uh, let's talk about your cast uh well we mentioned uh, chase and lakeith uh oh, owen wilson tiffany haddish danny devito rosario dawson i mean everyone is bringing their a game yes. and everyone has their own moment of proper laugh out yes, loud yes, funniness yes, yes. What was the atmosphere like on set? Because you sometimes oh. wonder whether people do it for the cameras, but then obviously a lot of comic actors are quite serious once yes. the camera stops. What's yes. it like? I mean, we had, you know, part of I think the most important thing I can do as a director actually is to create a certain kind of creative space. And we were shooting this movie during COVID. So we everyone has to kind of like stay isolated from each other. We all have PPE over our faces. Right. Uh, but it was important, at least for the actors, uh, while we were in that sort of liminal space of, you know, rehearsing and shooting to really be allowed to kind of vibe with each other and, and feel that out. And you can see it between particularly, I think, Rosario and Chase, uh, you know, this mo- this mother son uh, dynamic that they have is one that they had to build in real time. You know, in the few moments we could be around each other and actually communicate freely. Uh, so that that was really important, you know. 
know, um, I, I, I don't know uh, that I could ever call uh, a movie set a, a relaxing uh, sort of uh, good vibes kind of a place. But at least for the actors, uh, you know, I, I wanted to create some liminal space. And I think I did a good enough job because you can see them start to really become that family uh, that they become in this film. And uh, even after we've we made the movie, you know, everyone kind of loves each other and stays in touch. And that's a really beautiful thing to have helped facilitate. I'm not going to spoil it, but there's one. I'm a real sucker for slapstick. Um, <laughs> and there's a moment, I'm just going to say, Owen Wilson and Wall Lamp, <laughs> where coffee came out of my nose. It's, <laughs> it's just, it's so perfect. It's great. Thank you. Thank you very it's much. It's really good. And <laughs> um, obviously, there was, there was a previous iteration of this where Guillermo del Toro was involved. And um, did any of uh, the aspects that were involved in in his version did they they transfer transfer to I yours? I don't believe so. Right. Uh, you know, again, I my my, my introduction to Haunted Mansion was Katie Dipple's script. So whatever happened between Guillermo's and and Katie's version, I really don't know. But I also know that the way that we shot this movie sort of allows for a few different things to continue. Mm-hmm. We we sort of. Um, you know, involve uh, several of the ghosts in the plot in a very direct way. But there are other ghosts and there are other sort of histories and stories that are encased in the in the Haunted Mansion, let's say, uh, that sort of could still absolutely support their own movie and movie universe. So it's interesting. You know, the, the studio is pretty close to the chest about that stuff. But I, I do get the sense that the Disney understands that there are many areas, you know, in the realm of Haunted Mansion that uh, could be could be ripe for cinematic uh, interpretation. Well, as I said, a fantastic movie. Go see it at the cinema. And while we're on the subject of cinema, Justin, I'm very excited. You're about to enter another dimension where our virtual cinema awaits. You are our guide. We are your audience. Let's go on a trip to the movies. (laughs) So we push open the doors to our temple of film and find ourselves in the foyer. There's an excited buzz as there always is in a cinema foyer. The hum of anticipation. It's your perfect cinema trip, Justin. Who have you picked, living or dead, to go with you? Um, I've picked Burt Williams. Uh, he's been on my mind a lot. This is the first black movie star, uh, really the first black star ever from America. And um, uh, that's significant because, you know, pop culture in America is black culture. Uh, the first pop culture in America uh, is minstrelsy. Uh, and this is a star that we don't talk about a lot because the images of him are in blackface. That was really the only way a black person could participate. But he was a gigantic star. And and his impact is felt and seen throughout cinema history, even though we don't really realize that that's who it's from. And he is this intelligent, eloquent, beautiful man who, for whatever reason... I just I think about him a lot uh, as I move through my career, uh, and I would love to both talk to him about his experiences and also let him know just how influential he ended up being. Uh, he died in his 40s. There's no way he could have even dreamed of of the heights that cinema and performance would go to, let alone black participation in it. And I think I have a sneaking suspicion he's like just kind of a funny, cut up kind of mm-hmm. guy, you know. Uh, so yeah, that's 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 who I would take with me. Yeah, I, I I I had to look him up. I'll be completely honest, and it surprised me when you read about what he achieved yeah. in his life. The fact that he isn't mentioned as yes. as, as often as as you'd think it's, it is very surprising. Yeah, you don't really you literally don't arrive at the major movie stars of the early twenties. You know, this this is the guy who Chaplin studied, mm-hmm. who Buster Keaton studied in the same way that the Rolling Stones studied uh, Little Richard. He's one of those unsung heroes that just buried by time. Mm-hmm. Well, it's you and Bert Williams heading to our cinema. Uh, there's a clock on the wall in the foyer. It reads a specific time. What time of day have we gone to the cinema? Uh, eight o'clock, I think. It gives enough time for cocktails and maybe some bites before the movie. And also like a little bit of time after, too, to talk about what we just saw. I think uh, those two are really important uh, times to me, uh, <laughs> going to see a movie that, you know, isn't always a part of the experience. And Exactly. I mean, you know. This is why we go to the cinema as well for those bookends. Yeah. Either side of the movie, the anticipation, and then discussing it with yeah. friends. Yeah. 8 p.m. is quite a, a busy screening, so I'm assuming you like a, a communal cinema experience, yes. a full auditorium. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's it's wild 
what an audience does to a movie. You know, it's just like when you go see a play, you never see the same performance. Well, you, because the actors are vibing off of the audience in real time. And even though you can't really, a movie doesn't quite operate in that way, it, it, it's incredible how much it just changes your experience just knowing other people are there. So, I mean, I, I imagine at this stage you have had the opportunity to sit and watch Haunted Mansion with a, a, a crowd of people, yes. a busy cinema. What was that experience like? Oh, it was incredible. <laughs> it's also harrowing. You know, uh, we tested the movie quite a bit, which is an important part of the process to me. Uh, and, and, you know, you get sighs of relief when when those jokes start to crack and people start to laugh and, and people start to, you know, audibly cry or gasp or something. That's, you know, that live reaction, <laughs> it's a feedback loop that makes me feel like I actually did something, if that makes sense. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I, And without it, it, it's quite difficult I, I, to complete the loop. Like when I'm doing TV, uh, my Netflix show in particular, like it was always so weird to finish it and it just goes away. Mm. And then you're told you're given some data at a certain point. Point, but that's about it. Uh, but it, it makes me feel like I, I, I've actually done the thing I wanted to do, which is to tell a story to a group of people. I wanted to communicate a set of ideas and and, and know that they actually landed with people. So, yeah, there's nothing like uh, seeing it with a crowd. And you, and you said that you, you quite enjoy the, the testing experience because some people some people don't. It's yeah, like, this I, is what I, I, I wouldn't say enjoy, but important. Right. <laughs> I find it quite important uh, because uh, – up until the testing point, it's just a fantasy whether or not the thing that you think you're communicating actually communicated, you know? And you really need to hear from people who don't love you or know you or know that you're there to really understand, like, how your your your, your movie is hitting. You know, back in, in the vaudeville days, in the theater days, you would live and die, you know, by the audience's reaction. And it created this instinct in artists that you can feel in early movies. Uh, with movie directing, it's a lot harder to hear from the audience throughout the process. So all you got really is when you make it, test it. Uh, and I think what's so hard about that stage for for me and for any director is you've made so many decisions up until that point that could just be wrong. <laughs> like Just straight up, you're wrong, bro. Like that is absolutely not hilarious or that is not scary or that's too long or whatever. And they will... Absolutely tell you. <laughs> was there anything ridiculous that came back that you just like, nope, not that. I'm not. Yeah. My favorite thing that came back was that, the, you know, the kids in the audience wanted more scares because I think there was a great a sense of trepidation about that from the studio. How much can kids handle? How much do we want the kids to handle? All of that. And even in preparation for that, uh, that first test screening, there were some things that were kind of pulled out. So he was too scared. And then we heard from kids' mouths like, oh, we love that part. And is there more to that part? And is there another scene like that? And so uh, that was kind of incredible because that was my instinct. That's what I felt like we'd get. And uh, once the studio heard that, we could we kind of could roll with a lot of stuff that maybe felt a little too edgy before. That's great. And the fact that it came from the kids as well. So the parents can't go, you terrified my little child. Because <laughs> no, like, they, were, they were the most game, I got to say. Um, <laughs> So that was fun. That was fun. That's what you want when you're a kid. You want you want those scares. Yeah. Right? You want to watch movies like the, uh, you know, I mean, Nightmare on Elm Street 2, to use your example. That, I mean, I'm not saying... That might be too far, maybe. <laughs> but, you know, maybe that was negligence uh, for me growing up. But I will say, like, when you're a kid, like, you don't want to feel like something's being dumbed down for you. That's why. You, you yeah. kind of, you want the sense, even if you are allowed to see a movie, that you're seeing something you're not supposed to see. It's something just, like, a little naughtier than you're supposed to see. And I got to say, that's also why the ride is so cool, mm. because the minute you're on that ride, the ride does not pull its punches. OK, at least the one in Disneyland in California, in California, you know, at the end of that stretching room sequence, you look up and there's a hanging body above you, you know, laughing maniacally like you are <laughs> under no uh, illusion that what we're dealing with here is death, <laughs> you know, life and death. Mm. So, uh, yeah, I think kids could take it. Yeah, and I think I think so many movies. If if a movie ever finds uh, itself talking down to kids, kids are so smart. Yeah, they know it. They, they know, it and they're over it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 All right, brilliant. So eight o'clock now, uh, Justin. You booked the tickets for this trip. Thank you very much. Yes. Um, where are we going to be sitting when we enter the auditorium? Perfect seat. I, I'm a middle guy. I'm a middle, middle guy. So I like to sit in the middle of the row, in the middle of the theater. It's, it is just the most immersive viewpoint. Um, it, it, you know, I want to be as surrounded by the screen from edge to edge as possible and as close to what the director sees. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I ask this question because I have to sit on the aisle um, uh -huh. because I have 
to put it bluntly, quite a weak bladder. <laughs> so I, I, I get a bit sort of anxious if I'm trapped in the middle. Yeah. In this fictional uh, setting, I've, I've emptied my bladder before the movie <laughs> and, uh, and, and and I'm sitting with a ghost, uh, a Burt Williams. So, you know, in my mind, the bladder is, is, is not on my mind. It's, yes. it's not a part of the equation. Exactly. Of course. <laughs> but uh, but just... you're right, though. In real life, I, I'm an aisle guy, too, because I like a quick escape if I hate the movie or if I need a break from it. Do you, just, do you sometimes take a break from a movie? You sort of go, oh, I just... Oh, God, if I'm hating it, yes, wow. yes. Especially, oh, God, yeah, I can't. I hate watching bad movies. Some people really love watching bad movies, and I like watching camp. I, I, I like watching movies that maybe people thought were bad at the time, mm. but just uh, there's nothing worse than being trapped in a movie that's just not killing it for me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and yeah. especially if the audience likes it. Then I'm just like, <laughs> oh, God, what is wrong with you idiots? You know, I got to get out of there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We're sitting in the middle of the middle. So the final thing we need before we leave the foyer, oh, the air is full of wonderful smells. All manner of snacks and foodstuffs are available at the various counters. What are you choosing to eat? I, I'm a big candy guy. Uh, when I, I like a little, I like a bite of someone else's popcorn. You know, I like a little soda. But the thing I want all to myself is the candy. I've always been a sweets guy, especially like fruity sweets. It's just my thing. So do you – here in the UK, we have pick and mix. So okay. we have all these like these plastic containers with like teeth, cola bottles, okay, okay, okay. like red licorice strings and uh -huh, stuff. Uh -huh, uh -huh. What sweets specifically? What candy uh, would you go for? Okay, so in, in the States, there's two that I – they're usually my go – or three that are my go-to. Uh, the, uh, the Red Hots, so like the super, you know, kind of hot cinnamon flavored like little – red tubes uh, and uh, I'm a big Skittles guy like I said I like I like a fruity Skittle oh, taste the uh, rainbow taste. I, I love to taste the rainbow as often <laughs> as possible uh, and then um, I, I also really like uh, Sour Patch Kids like that sour taggy sweet thing um, that's that's a favorite so you've got a great selection there you've yeah. got the heat from the cinnamon you've got the Skittles for the sweetness yeah. and then the sour tangy ones yeah I'm, I'm, I'm with you do you want a drink Oh yeah, I mean, can I have a can I have a drink? Drink? You can have anything you, you like. Know it's your I, cinema. I love a good I love a good old fashioned. I love a oh. good old fashioned with a movie. I don't know why. It's just it's a drink I like to sip, and it it, it can last me for you know a nice uh, at least for the first act. Mm. Uh, and so uh, for whatever reason, that's what I think of. It's a great. It's a great. So that's now remind me. I'm not an old fashioned drinker, but that's it's a whiskey based yeah, cocktail. Yeah, whiskey based. A little bit of simple syrup if it's done right, and then you want like kind of um you you want like the hint of orange, you know. Mm. So, uh, especially if it's well made, you just want like the ze like the orange zest <laughs> in there. It's one of my favorites. Yep, that's got me going. Yeah. I, I, just that description <laughs> has activated my salivary glands. Okay, oh, and the cherry. Let's not forget it. You want a really quality cherry. That's the, that's the best. I love a, like a nice dark Luxardo cherry. Incredible order. Yeah. <laughs> Incredible order, Justin. Right. It is time to leave the foyer. We push open the set of doors and walk down the corridor towards the auditorium. Now, the corridor's looking a little bare at the moment, so I'm going to put up some posters that illustrate some of your most important movie memories. Mm. And the first poster depicts your fondest movie memory. One is definitely Pippi Longstockings because it was the first movie that I remember seeing in theaters over and over again. And I don't know that it holds up. Maybe it does. I don't know. I saw it recently and I didn't think so, but now it's coming back around. Uh, <laughs> but I feel like uh, Pippi Longstockings got to go up in in, uh, in there. Uh, for, for anyone who is unfamiliar with Pippi Longstockings, what's the story of Pippi Longstockings? I mean, it's just nutty. It, it is uh, <laughs> a, a, a homeless girl whose dad is like away at sea. Mm -hmm. is somehow like this magic uh, sort of uh, person with a talking horse. I actually don't remember the plot. I just remember she danced a lot. Yeah. And she could like spin around and create like an air – like she could like – I, she was attached to like a wagon and she could spin around and make it like fly like a helicopter in the air. That's really all I needed as a kid uh, in terms of like plot points. Yeah. So uh, that's what I remember the most. Uh, and she would delight like the neighbors and be, you know, she was like a wonderful like metaphor for, for being a queer person, I think. Like just wild and outlandish and nothing that anyone could understand. But yet she delighted the town. That's sort of what I remember. That's the hard sell on Pippi Longstockings. I like I like. Like it. I mean, you mentioned talking horse, and I was sold. I love a talking animal. Yeah, it's yeah. great. Okay. I, I also, because Bert's with me, uh, Dreamgirls, because uh, Dreamgirls was the first movie that I sat and watched where there was a literal applause break. Like, the movie, of course, did not stop. 
but I would like for Burt Williams to to know how far his legacy goes. Uh, Jennifer Hudson singing that song, uh, you know, and I'm telling you, uh, and hearing an entire crowd of people literally up, stand and applaud as if we were in a real theater and that she could actually hear, and she couldn't, of course, was kind of a profound moment for me, that that could actually be provoked in inside of a movie theater uh, was, was was quite a quite a revelation. And it's all on, on the back of that incredible performance that she gives, mm-hmm. uh, and especially for a musical performance, which I think is best seen and heard live. Uh, for that to be captured in a modern movie is, is quite something. You're absolutely right. To yeah. to get a, a, a spontaneous, <clears throat> excuse me, reflex action from an audience where they don't even think, oh, we should applaud. Yeah. They're just on their feet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was that was a pretty big one. Okay. So, Pippi Longstockings or Dreamgirls? I've only got space for one poster. Oh, God. Oh, 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 oh I have to pick one of these two. Yeah, for your fondest. I think because it's Bird, i got to go with Dreamgirls. All right. We're putting up a poster for Dreamgirls yeah. as your fondest movie memory. Right. The next poster we're putting up depicts your worst movie memory. Oh, God. My worst... <laughs> okay, let me not be shady, because I don't want to... <laughs> you know what? Uh, this one's easy, actually, now that I think about it. The worst memory uh, is Birth of My Freaking Nation. Man, I hate that movie. It, it's so built up. It, it is so, like, you know, I went to film school, and if you go to film school, there's always a moment where you talk about Birth of a Nation. Mm-hmm. D.W. Griffith's sort of, you know, creation of the feature film uh, format as we understand it, and there's a lot of great technical wizardry to talk about. But what is always backgrounded is the horrible racism uh, in the movie and I remember seeing the movie and just also not thinking it was that great of a movie like it definitely technically is 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 really important and uh, sort of historically it's really important but unlike some other older films you know I, I look at like F.W. Murnau's movies like Sun, uh, uh, Sunset or I look at like you know uh, 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 Fritz Lang's you know Metropolis or I look at these other like you know early feature films I'm like these movies still slap these movies still like hold up and I can watch them and get something new from them Birth of a Nation sucks man <laughs> it's just it, and, and there's nothing worse than sitting and watching something like Birth of a Nation surrounded by white people who are like you know enjoying its technical mastery and then having to like talk about it as if we hadn't just seen the most racist piece of crap it, that has ever been made uh, like I, that 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 easily is the worst uh, experience <laughs> I, I'm almost reluctant to Put up a poster. Do you want to just leave it blank? Let's put it up. We need to talk. <laughs> you know, I, I'm not a fan of uh, of uh, not seeing history. I, mm. I think, especially when it comes to black folks in cinema, it's important to see history. It's important. To, I think it's an important movie to see. Actually, it's just never really in a context that I think is appropriate for that movie. So okay. put the poster up. We're putting the poster. Let's for spit birth. at it on the way in. <laughs> <laughs> putting up a poster for Birth of the Na- a Nation as your worst movie memory. Okay, third poster. This depicts the last performance that brought you, Mm. Justin, to tears. Yes. Okay, it's going to sound like self-promotion, but this is easily Haunted Mansion because it's it's the last movie I saw, first of all. I just saw, uh, you know, the premiere of it uh, uh, at Disneyland back in the States and watching it with my mom and my husband, uh, both of which I, I wouldn't have been able to make that movie without. My mother, because she's, you know, sparked the the the, the seed in, in taking me to Disney Disney World and my husband because he just endured being with and around me while making this movie for so long um, but uh, but when Lakeith sort of opens up to uh, his newfound family about what happened with his old family that really got me again and I, I found myself kind of weeping hopefully as silently as possible, uh, unexpectedly, because I've, of course, seen it a billion times and I feel like I'm calloused over, but it actually reached in and just, it really, it turned it on for me all I, over again. I mentioned at the start that we were going to mention uh, Lakeith Stanfield again. That scene is so, he's so good in it. Yeah. And I, I'm just going to say at the start, but here seems more appropriate. I mean, just what uh, what a likable presence that man is yes. on a cinema screen like the warmth uh, and the the empathy that you as a, as a as a movie watcher have towards him and his character Ben yes. is profound it's profound and it, it was also really important that that be on a black face because it is so difficult to convince 
executives uh, and, and, you know, the people who run Hollywood to take that chance on a black face. Mm-hmm. It really is. And I, and I don't know how it sounds or seems to the average moviegoer, but you cannot imagine how difficult it is to cast a, a black lead in a movie, no matter how great everyone knows they are, because there is that fear. Well, will the audience sort of connect to them the right. way that they will, you know, for sure, if it's uh, Harrison Ford or somebody <laughs> like that. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, to see that happen, to see kids of all races raise their hands at the end of a test screening and go, Ben's my favorite character, <laughs> really, uh, it's important. It, 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 it's important. It's an important aspect of what we do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he, he knocks it out of the park. In yeah, this he's movie. fantastic. He Just... really is. And like I said, he makes me cry, even though I literally was there <laughs> <laughs> when he did it. <laughs> did uh, did mom like uh, the movie? Oh, my God. My mother. Nobody <laughs> loves this movie more than my mother. First of all, everything that happened on screen, she was talking herself through it. And I was so proud because here's the thing. When you make a movie, there is there is no better feeling than showing that movie to black people and having black people talk through the movie. It is truly one of the m- best experiences I can have as a filmmaker. And to know that they're with it, you know what I mean? Yeah. Not talking at it and wanting it to go away, but like my mother just like, oh, oh, ah, just like silently kind of commenting on the things that would happen. Like it, it, it made me so proud. It, it was it was truly like a, a wonderful feedback loop of making a movie. Uh, I, I I think you, you may have mentioned this uh, previously, but the scene where... Uh, uh, Travis is playing with his his X Men action yeah. action figures. I think you've described it as one of the most autobiographical moments uh, <laughs> you've ever put on screen. It's it, yeah. I mean, I and I've put some doozies, uh, some that I've I've admitted to, and some that I probably never will. But um, but that actually is a really tender one because mm-hmm. that is how I made movies as a kid. I didn't, I ha- we did not have access to any equipment and, and there was no sort of understanding that that could be a career. And so I, I re- and I, and I even was kind of embarrassed about it because it wasn't how the other kids played, but I was a latchkey kid, which meant I spent a lot of time uh, at home alone. And when my mother was at work, I would put on a soundtrack, usually a John Williams score, like Jurassic Park or something. And while that soundtrack was playing, I would take my action figures and I close one eye so I could control the depth of field and I'd play with them and I would create these scenes and I would create these stories and they were elaborate and they would continue on for days and days. You know? <laughs> I'd pick them back up and we'd continue the adventure and I didn't even know that a job could come from that at the time. It's just like what my heart and mind and imagination was most inclined and relaxed and happy to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, the, the, the action figure thing, um, you know, that's how this sort of fatherless child was able to <laughs> comprehend life. Right then. So our third poster then for the last performance that brought you to tears. We're putting up a poster for Haunted Mansion. Hey, I'll take it. Haunted Mansion. And the final poster before we enter the auditorium depicts your unpopular movie. Oh, opinion. that's right. You know what? I love Mother Exclamation Mark. <laughs> so this is this is this is the Darren Aronofsky 2017 psychological madness yes. horror thing. I love this movie so much and I was so shocked that people did not like it and it, you know it's a it's one of those movies that divides the room so it's I run into people who love it mm. as well but it's the one movie that I fight movie people about like I there are <laughs> you know there's some movies where I'm like oh this group will get it this group won't this one I have no idea when I walk into a room and I, I mention that I love the movie I have had like just f- huge fights with people who I've <laughs> never disagreed with on a movie before uh, and, and vice versa. You know, people who love it where I'm like, you too. Okay, thank God somebody loved it and somebody whose opinion I also tr- – that movie is very div- divisive. But um, for whatever reason, the minute it began, I knew what he was doing. It, 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 I understood that this was an allegory film and I understood that this was like not necessarily to be taken literally and and and, and his references to uh, other films and in particularly like science movies I don't know he got me he 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 figured out what you know exactly where the Justin Simeon alley is and he created a movie you know that takes place in that alley and that movie is <laughs> is, is mother exclamation mark for me oh, so what are some of the things where people got to disagree with you what what sort of things do they level at at you as a reason for not liking people this? I think get really irritated because the movie does not take place in any kind of reality right. <laughs> yeah. uh, and that you know I, I think the fact that it, it's an allegory film and that 
you know, these people represent ideas and not necessarily like literal people is not something that everyone picks up on until a certain point in the movie. And I, I can imagine not realizing that that's what this is and being very irritated because these people don't really always act like people. And the things that happen in the movie, like, don't really always follow a kind of cause and effect. But it has a cinema logic to it that, like, again, I go back to something like Sunrise by F.W. Murnau. And that's a movie where, like, yes, it's people. But these are people that represent an idea of people. Uh, same is true for Metropolis. These aren't necessarily, like, real characters in, a, in like, a reality setting. These are, these are clearly fictional um, almost like archetypes that are existing in a completely cinematic universe. And in that cinema- cinematic universe, there's a plot, but you don't have to pay as much attention to the plot as you pay attention to the ideas that are being put forth. It's an idea movie. It's a thinky movie. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it may not be the emotional roller coaster. And then and then shit gets really real in the movie too. And and there's some real like horror movie elements in it, but they just don't operate the same way because you're not connected to the characters the way you might expect. So that's my thought. Maybe. Maybe that's where the disconnect was, yeah. but I kind of understood right away. Oh, these aren't these isn't these aren't people. These are ideas inside of Aronofsky's brain, and we're watching these different ideas sort of compete. And for in it, in that way, I, I just really loved it, and I felt like his um his references, particularly his Fritz Lang references, uh, in terms of the other movies that he's quoting, uh, were just so delicious to see in a modern setting. So for my money, it was great, and the performances are wild, and I don't know, I love a movie that swings for the fences. I, I I I love a movie that just completely operates in a way it is not supposed to. Um, <laughs> those are some of my favorites. Yeah, it's uh, it was quite loved by critics at the time, but audiences. It was the audience. It, it, the famous quote is that on the the cinema score rating system, it's one of only twenty two films to get a grade F from <laughs> audiences. Uh, it joins the company. I'll, I'll tell you some. There's some surprising ones on here. Uh, not so surprising. Disaster movie. Um, Steven Soderbergh's Solaris got an F cinema score. I could see that too. Another movie I really like. But you know, part of it is that it's expectations. Mm. I think that the movie was being sold as this kind of thriller like horror movie and and there's all of this like the rosemary's baby was you know invoked in the posters and and it's not that at all. <laughs> like it's not those movies. No. Um it is uh it is only it, it draws from the world of horror and thriller, but I wouldn't even call it that. It's an art film. It's a it's a very expensive movie starred art film, and um, it, frankly, in terms of art films, we've we've gotten crazier in cinema history uh, <laughs> than Mother Exclamation Mark. So I, I I think if you tell, I think it depends on what you tell the audience that's coming into the theater. Mm-hmm. I really do. And Solaris is another one of those. And by the way, if we had Cinema Score back in the day. Let's talk about movies like 2001 A Space Odyssey, which, you know, famously the executives walked out of the premiere. It was so misunderstood. It, it took weeks for like the hippies and, the and you know, the LSD users to, <laughs> to find their way for, to the theater to teach the rest of us how to watch that movie. Yeah. You know, so. Uh, uh, the one thing I remember about Mother is that just a shocking scene with the baby. Uh, <laughs> that's the thing that seared <laughs> onto my retina from that film. It's, sure. Yeah. Wow. But yeah, quite quite shocking, and I blame no one for disliking it. Uh, uh, but when I get when I start talking with cinema heads about why they hate it, uh, that's when I really sink in because I'm like, you know, <laughs> you know, cinema history, you know that this is not really like all that new in terms of wh- where he's going here. It's just new that he's doing it now. Oh, I could I could go all day about Mother. <laughs> oh well, we're putting up a poster for your unpopular movie opinion, which is that you loved Mother, so the Mother poster is going up, and that's it in the corridor. It's time. That's a strange corridor door, I gotta say. <laughs> Dream girls, mother, birth of a what nation. What are we about to see? Yeah. Well, there's a few things we're gonna play. We're gonna push open the doors to the auditorium. Now, there's a queue of people hoping to join you and Bert in the cinema. Do you want to okay. let them in? Do you want a busy screen? Yeah. Well, the crowd go wild as they pour into the auditorium. So, a few things we're going to do on the big screen before we get to the movie you've picked for us. And the first thing we're going to do is play the trailer for the movie that you're most looking forward to seeing at the cinema. Oh, wow. You know, I think I I put Color Purple on this Mm -hmm. list because I, first of all, no shade, but I really wanted to make that movie. (laughs) 
<laughs> but I, I also really love the director that they chose, and I also think it looks fantastic. Uh, and so I'm, I'm really excited to see it. Uh, if you can't tell, I'm a big musical fan, mm-hmm. uh, and um, that one feels like it is filled with just really essential movie musical performances and uh, a sense of beauty and grace. So I'm excited for it. Yeah, the trailer looks great because obviously there's the 1985 Steven Spielberg yes, version. Yes, but I'm, I'm right in thinking this is based on this the... is the this is the musical adaptation. Yeah. yeah, based on the on the Broadway show. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay, and no hard feelings about not getting to make it yourself. You're no, fine. I mean, maybe for a second at the time. <laughs> but, you know, I, I, I'm a big believer in what's not for you isn't for you. And and so many movies that I, I've tried to make and haven't been able to, it, it's because I genuinely want to see them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm, I'm happy to see something that I didn't make uh, but need to see. So, yeah, I can't wait to see it. Great stuff. We're playing the trailer for The Color Purple, which I think is out around Christmas time here That's right. in the UK. So next up on the big screen, we're going to play the movie moment that makes you literally or metaphorically pump your fist oh in the God. air. Oh, my God. Uh, this one, I, I, I okay, we'll have to choose because I this one is all Bob Fosse movies. I the way people get about sports movies, like when somebody like gets a touchdown or whatever, mm-hmm. I uh, homosexual that doesn't really pay attention to sports all that much, or or knocks somebody out, or or like an action movie when someone like you know defeats the 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 enemy. I gasp in musical numbers, like especially Bob Fosse musical numbers, because they bring an entertainment factor that is just unmatched in musical filmmaking. Um, And whether I am talking about Sweet Charity or Liza Minnelli in Cabaret uh, or any sequence in All That Jazz, I will be watching these movies at home and I will stand up and shout. They get me so excited because it's like, uh, it's so bizarre and unnatural, the movements uh, that he gets his dancers into, the shapes that they make and the way he shoots them because he's both choreographer and director. He knows exactly where to place the lens at exactly the right time for the exactly right angle and the exactly right leg extension or something. (laughs) And and, uh, and he also like really knows what his performers can do, and so he's really great. And and sometimes I'll just watch like you know like he's got a few sequences in other movies like Kiss Me Kate, uh, where I just will watch just his sequence because it's so amazing. Or like Damn Yankees, I, I can't I can't get enough of Bob Fosse on the big screen. I really can't. So, so I don't. There's gonna have to be a mashup of all them movies I just mentioned. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I feel like they can cut them together, maybe. Uh, but there's like a Bob. Fo- let's, say, let's pretend there's a Bob Fosse retrospective coming to theaters, and they've cut up all the best musical numbers, and that's the trailer we're seeing. I love it. I, I love it. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll play a, a montage of Bob Fosse moments. <laughs> Regular listeners will know musicals are a slight blind spot for me. I don't. I haven't seen that many. However, I have seen all that jazz. Yeah. And, um, the song, the musical number in that that I still rewatch uh, solely on YouTube separately is um, "Everything Old Is New Again." Oh, I love it so much. <laughs> it's so good because you know, uh, I could go on, but like Bob Fosse, what I love about him is his first movie is "Sweet Charity," and that comes at the end of the big musical sort of like you know studio system era where you spend a billion dollars and, and no, just nobody came to see it. Mm-hmm. And this is the world's greatest musical you know, choreographer. And so what does he figure out how to do? He figures how to do musical numbers that feel really organic and that you don't see coming. And Everything Old is New Again is one of those where you don't even realize that you're straight up watching (laughs) a full-on classic MGM-style musical, but it just sort of happens like slice of life. It just starts kind of happening. And it's also like part lip sync and Oh, this is what I do. I make those noises, and I get really excited when I see that. All right, wonderful. Well, we're playing a, a mashup of brilliant Bob Fosse moments from Sweet Charity, Cabaret, all that jazz. Any, yeah. any more you want to add to that list? For the that's, moment? that's pretty good. That's a good list. That's a good list. <laughs> a good list. A good list. Uh, okay, so next up, we're going to play on the big screen what you consider cinema's most shocking moment. Ah! Of course. Sorry. Cinema's most shocking <laughs> moment. Yes. Um, <laughs> Moonlight winning. <laughs> Moonlight winning the Oscar because, like, it was the best movie of that year, and and it was so brilliantly directed. And and on top of all of that, it was black and it was gay, and it showed me things that I, as a gay black director, never even imagined putting in a movie. That's how like intimate that movie got in terms of the experiences. And so. 
It never happens that the movie I love wins. It never, ever happens. And so when La La Land was announced, uh, a movie that I did not like as much, I'll leave it there, I was like, well, of course, the system is systeming, and this is Hollywood Hollywooding, and got it, have a nice day. And so when the right movie won just moments later, and this is no shade because I love the filmmakers or both, but when the right movie won moments later, I was beside myself because the right thing was done and it was this, it was a literal shock and surprise. I mean, it was just, I know this is a TV moment, but in terms of cinema history, uh, it, it, it's, it was a huge one. It was a pleasant shock. It was. It was. I, re- I was actually covering the Oscars live on TV when that moment happened, and it, it truly was. I yeah. mean, one of the one of the uh, yeah, un- until a couple of years later, it was the most sure. shocking. And moment. I pre- and, and for my money, this was a much more interesting mm. uh, surprise to uh, unpack. <laughs> yeah. I, I do feel slightly sorry for Faye Dunaway. I, I feel Warren B. He slightly throws her under the bus because he reads it and he goes, "This isn't right," because it says, you know, yeah. best actress or, or something, and then he just sort of. Hands it to her. Hands it to her and allows her to become a moment of TV history where she's going, la, la, la. Yes, yes. But look, it it was, oh, what a night. What a night that must have been for the filmmakers, for Barry and for everything. Because it's rare. It's just rare in Hollywood that the right thing gets rewarded, I got to say. Fantastic. It's very rare. So that is cinema's most shocking moment. Moonlight winning as deserved. Okay, a couple more things to play. The next thing we're going to play is what line or piece of dialogue from a movie has most affected you? Love means never having to say you're sorry. No. Um, yeah, no, there are moments, but it's not the lines. It's not the lines that I remember. Like I, I was thinking of, um, <laughs> I was thinking the moment that is coming to mind, I think is leading up to my favorite movie, which is also coming up, but it is the, I don't know. I don't want to say it. I don't want to spoil the next answer. <laughs> okay, I'll say that. Okay, I'll, I'll do this because I think it'll give away a future answer. But it is, um, it is, it is a computer singing Daisy. <laughs> a computer singing Daisy. Daisy, Daisy, oh. give me your answer to that. That scene comes to mind, um, uh, and I'll explain why when we get to to the. To the okay, final answer. I like that. A little, <laughs> little, some breadcrumbs there for yeah. those people who know. All right, this is the final thing we're going to play through the Dolby Atmos speakers before we screen the movie, and this is the best use of music in a movie. Ooh, these are all the same answer, aren't they? For, I, for I the think they. Ones. I think they might be. I think they might be. Uh, so I love the way Kubrick uses music mm-hmm. in movies. He's like kind of the blueprint for me. Like whenever I'm talking about music um, with a composer, uh, and Chris Bowers is a, is a one that I you know has composed uh, my last two films. Um, but the way he uses music is so unexpected because it's sort of it both is appropriate for the scene, for the vibe of the scene. But it also is telling its own story that's a bit of a counterpart to the scene. Like he's not just there to like highlight the laughs and all that kind of stuff because he he tended to use like existing music rather than have his movies scored. Uh, and they 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 bring out things in the movie that just wouldn't have been there if it wasn't that song. And the movie then brings out things in the song that like now you can't like it's very difficult once I once you've heard a piece of classical music in a Kubrick film. It's very difficult to not immediately just see the movie whenever you hear that song again. And he creates these relationships between visual images and music that is so unexpected. And once you experience it, you can't feel it or hear it any other way. And I, there's something about that I think is just so brilliant. Um, and, 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 and part of it is because it, it's, it's dual track. It's like there's something happening in front of me that I'm aware of. But then there's something happening like in my body subconsciously and subliminally that I didn't expect really. Um, and so that's always going to be kind of like the bar for me. Uh, I'm assuming you're going to keep uh, keep quiet about exactly which moment so as not to give away the film you're screening <laughs> yes. for us. But uh, let's do it. We've arrived, Justin. We've arrived at the moment, the moment that you announced to this crowded auditor- auditorium of yourself, Bert, and a crowd, <laughs> the movie out of all others you have picked to screen for us tonight. What are we watching at 8 p.m.? I 
believe we're going to watch 2001 A Space Odyssey. That's what I said, right? I mean, it's not, but that's fine. <laughs> what did I say? Oh, it's a secret now. It's oh, a- <laughs> please tell me what I said. Oh, my God. But I want you to pick 2001. But you can't. I mean, I shouldn't do this, but because you have given two answers, so that's twice the effort. Thank you. I guess we could do a double bill. Uh, you picked To Be or Not To Be. By- oh! <laughs> oh, I want to see that one, too. Oh, no. Oh. Oh, my goodness. Um, Okay, I'm going to stick with 2001, but To Be or Not To Be is a fantastic movie. And if I had realized um, before right now that that's what I (laughs) was leading us all to, (laughs) I would have curated my answers a little bit differently. But please see that movie, too. It's fantastic. It's one of my favorites of all time. But 2001 Space Odyssey, I think, is probably the best movie uh, I've ever seen. I I don't... um, you know, I know this isn't true for everybody, but I think of it as the best uh, movie ever made, and I'm comfortable saying it's the best American movie ever made, but it's it's certainly, uh, it's like a religious experience for me, that movie. And it, it, it's a movie that I saw a lot of times, and I, I absolutely hated the movie the first time I saw it, <laughs> and I kind of hated it the second time, and then the third time I was like, what is wrong with all of you so people? How old, roughly how old, because I saw it too young. I, 12, I, right, 13, yeah. it was on TCM. And it was uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey. And I, in my head, I had Star Wars yeah. and Star Trek and all this stuff. And it comes on and it's like, what? It's like, you know, the monkey uh, opening. And then, like, once you finally get to the future, it's just like aircraft, like spacecraft just drifting slowly with classical. I did not understand this movie. I was like, where's the Odyssey? Where is it? And where's the space? Because we're spending a lot of time with these monkey people on Earth, and I haven't seen no space yet. I just, I did not understand. I did not compute uh, as, a, as an adolescent this film. So when, when did the switcheroo happen? It happened for me... Uh, I, in film school, but not a film class, ironically, um, it was a philosophy teacher who sort of took us through a very general sort of survey of philosophical thought over the course of that first semester, really from the beginning all the way to present day. And then, really, without any explanation or any thing to like tie it together we come in for the last day of class and there's not he's not teaching us anything he turns the lights off and shows us 2001 a space odyssey and it was this religious experience is all i can say because i realized now that i had been primed for it that the movie was telling me visually and really strictly through cinema without and this is why it was so hard to pick the without dialogue you know there's nobody in that movie that like says the theme of the movie there's nobody in the movie that you know there's no moment in the movie where it kind of tells you what it is or how to watch it but i realized like he's telling us this these philosophical truths about like evolution and and personal evolution going from a, a child a baby and and becoming a man and sort of like where do you situate the compassion uh, and, and the thoughtfulness and the logical thinking of man with our uh, our, our sort of like our, our violence uh, and our, our our need to kill and our need to win and compete and there's no other topic that's more important to us as a species and he said all of this without saying a word of it in a movie. Uh, And everything from just like the rotation of everything and and sort of coming back to the same place that you started, but you're just a little wiser, to this ending scene where you have, you know, Dr. Poole, who up until this point has almost been like, you know, an AI person. He barely says anything. He doesn't really seem to have any feeling about anything. Uh, he, He doesn't really get angry. He doesn't really, you know, do anything. And then suddenly faced with this existential crisis of like, it's either me or it's how he he finds a way to balance both his anger at being hunted by this computer, by this AI, which is quite ironic hmm. uh, to say, and his compassion because as he's killing Hal, he's almost like he's being sweet to Hal. He, he's, it's almost like he, he is informing Hal to read itself a bedtime story, hmm. making it repeat that song, that, that Daisy song, while he is killing it because that's what he has to do. And um, it's only then that he sort of transcends to this. It's, it's so profound. But it is like literature. It requires unpacking. Like great literature, it requires being prepared for it before you see it. Mm -hmm. And like great literature, it is open to almost endless interpretation on the other side. Very few movies, and part of this is because movies are so expensive (laughs) and so difficult to get made, but very few movies arrive at that level. Um, And and it takes a tremendous amount of vision uh, and and courage and like just balls Mm -hmm. to do something like that in the studio system, if at 
at all. Uh, so that for that reason and many of those reasons, I mean, it's just to me one of the most greatest cinematic accomplishments. And to take you back, but to be or to not to be is also great, by the way, <laughs> by Ernst Lubitsch, and it's not exactly what it sounds like it's about—a fantastic film too. <laughs> so to take you back to the previous question about the best use of music in a movie, I mean, obviously the Blue Danube where the spaceship yes. springs to yes. mind, but yes. also the opening with the monolith. Well, yeah. Do you have a favorite? Well, it's Ligeti uh, and that avant-garde sort of score when he goes into the Stargate. I mean, there's, first of all, talk about a movie with music moments. Uh, you mentioned a bunch of them that are that outstrip any music movie moment ever, and yet they're not, <laughs> in my opinion, even the height of music movie moments in this movie. But yeah, the Stargate sequence, over all that screaming, <laughs> you know, that Ligeti uh, 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 put together, uh, haunting in and of itself, haunting on its own, but uh, matched with indelible images. I mean, he was really trying to photograph the unphotographicable <laughs> and and to this day with the height of cgi and us being able to do anything we want and show audiences anywhere we want it is just the most stunning uh, outer space sequence ever period hands down can't be beat um, this is going to sound like a very strange right turn. Have you seen Barbie yet? I haven't. I'm dying to. Okay. Because okay. Barbenheimer is happening while I'm out here promoting <laughs> this. So, uh, okay. you know, through the jet lag, I can only look at clips. <laughs> I, I, I won't spoil it then, but... Um, I know that there's a big 2001 okay, homage. Yes. So you know about that then. Yes, That's, yes, th yes. Yeah, it opens with a, a yes. 2001 parody, which uh, I, I maybe I'm being too judgy, but I swear... At least eighty percent of the audience that I was in went straight went over their over, heads. Went, well, that's why I love Greta Gerwig doing a movie like Barbie. You know, because it's sort of um, I, whether we're talking about Ernst Lubitsch or Kubrick, part of you know, as an artist, you have to survive in the landscape of Hollywood. There's no other way to get money for your art, and for her to find a way to be so subversive and to be so sociological with her approach and make a big pop culture movie that makes a ton, a ton, a ton, a ton, a ton of money. Uh, <laughs> Uh, it's very encouraging for the rest of us. <laughs> oh, wonderful. We've screened, go on then, To Be or Not To Be by <laughs> Ernst Lubitsch and, of course, Kubrick's 2001 A Space. We did a double feature. Obviously, we did the you double You think Barbe Barbenheimer is long. This is a long <laughs> double feature. <laughs> and that's it. The curtains have closed. The guests are milling out, smiling, chatting, and thanking you for taking them on an incredible night out of the movie. But before you go, it's time for this week's mystery question as we ask, what's in the box? I saw you with the box. What was in the box? Oh, what's in the box? So, your mystery question. Justin, yes. this week is as the director of okay interesting as the director of Haunted Mansion ghosts uh -huh. real or not I think ghosts are real yeah I don't know what they are per se mm. I think that like that's the thing we our explanations for what they are and why they are go are, are all over the place but yeah who I, if you've encountered a ghost mm. you know you have <laughs> it, nobody could tell you otherwise uh, there's no other explanation for the experience and have you yeah of course i grew up look i grew up black Catholic in the South, okay? So already I was raised in a, in a culture where you're talking about spirits, you're talking about the other side, not as a warning, not as a fable, not as a promise, but as like an actual account of something that happened. So I grew up with ghost stories. And, you know, unfortunately for me, I, I endured quite a few losses as a child. And what I found really wild is on a few occasions, uh, on the other side of a great loss, whether it's losing my grandmother or uh, losing a your friend later in high school, there were these moments on the other side of that where there is no other explanation than that I was contacted by them. Again, I, I'm not going to be dogmatic about how this might have happened, but I know the universe is a mysterious place, and um, there are just some hard things to explain in any other way, in my opinion. So, yeah, I think they're real. All right. Lovely. And that's it. We are done. Your taxi has arrived to ferry you back to reality. But before you leave, let's recap your perfect night out oh, man. at the cinema. <laughs> so you are going with Bert Williams at 8 o'clock in the evening. You are sitting in the middle of the middle. You are having Skittles, <laughs> some cinnamon hot ones, and some sour tangy sweets with... Mmm, an old-fashioned as well. We are putting up posters for your fondest movie memory of Dreamgirls, your worst movie memory, Birth of a Nation, your last performance that brought you to tears, Lakeith Stanfield in Haunted Mansion, and your unpopular movie opinion, 
mother, exclamation mark, is actually very good and you will fight for that statement. So we're going to play a trailer for The Color Purple. After that, we are going to play uh, the moment that makes you metaphorically or literally pump your fist in the air, a mashup of Bod Fosse's Sweet Charity Cabaret and all that jazz. The moment you consider cinema's most shocking, Moonlight winning as deserved, the line of dialogue from a movie that most affected you, Daisy, sung by Hal Inn. 2001 this A Space so Odyssey. so much more coherent than when I said. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the best use of music in a movie is from 2001 A Space Odyssey, that soundscape of the screams at the end. Yes. And then finally, we are going to play a double bill of <laughs> Ernst Lubitsch's To Be or Not To Be from 1942 and Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. Justin, thank you for taking us on a trip to the movies. Have you had a good time? I had a great time. I, I love that we watched like 19 hours of cinema and that, uh, <laughs> you know, I had some old fashioned. So I appreciate it. And the conversation has been great. Thank you so much. And as Justin's cab carries him away from our virtual cinema off into the distance, we must all leave his movie paradise and return to reality. But to soften the blow, how would you like a pair of tickets for a night out at a very real Odeon cinema? Each week we give away a pair to someone who leaves us a review of the show on Apple Podcasts. It's that simple, so jump on there, leave us a review, and if I read it out, we will send you some tickets. The competition is only open to UK residents, and the tickets exclude Odeon Leicester Square and Odeon Lux. And congratulations to this week's winner, Frank B, who left us the following review on Apple Podcasts titled Amazing. A truly great listen, and it's fascinating to see how others approach a trip to the movies. I've loved going to the cinema since I first went to see Roger Rabbit as a kid. Each guest so far has been brilliant, although anyone picking hot dogs or nachos as a snack should be instantly thrown out. I give it two thumbs up. Keep up the good work. Thank you, Frank B. Drop us an email to triptomovies at gmail.com that's triptomovies at gmail.com and we will get you your Odeon tickets and just before I say my final farewell for this episode don't forget you can find the full video for today's Justin Simeon interview and indeed for every guest over on our Trip to the Movies YouTube channel so please head over there and as I said at the start help us grow the pod by hitting that subscribe button and that really is it I'll be back next week when another guest fills our cinema with their celluloid dreams as they take us on a trip to the movies. Bye-bye.